0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with all of my Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We're coming to you via Zoom, recording on Tuesday afternoon as we typically do. It'll go up on SiriusXM wednesday morning and then be replayed a few times over the course of the week we'll also get it out as a podcast wednesday afternoon or thursday morning at the latest thank you guys for listening we're going to do a little covid start off the show with a little covid 19 discussion as we've been doing for a couple of years now trying to make sense of it reading the studies talking about the studies trying to make sense of it from an analytical perspective and then we'll move on to the world of sports gentlemen afternoon to you good to see you Looking forward to talking through these things with you. Up first, what has caught your eye in the world, in the world of COVID-19?
3: Well, I'll go first. I mean, you know, it was just announced that uh, mask mandates have been uh, removed, uh, at least on, you know, I think a federal judge struck down the mask mandate. So a bunch of airlines have announced that they're not going to require uh, masks. Uh, train, Amtrak has announced the same. And so now the question is, what's likely the impact of this? Uh, that's the question. Um, my guess would be, uh, since case rates are down significantly, uh, hospitalizations and death are way down. Uh, obviously, vaccination is going up at a slower rate than many of us might want, um, that at least for people that have chosen to get protection against the virus using vaccines, um, the effect of this, my guess, will be, but Audio will correct me, will be minimal, and that for people that are unprotected, uh, this will lead to greater spread and possibly have deleterious effects or negative effects for the unvaccinated.
0: Let me just, can I just jump in? and want to make a, just a quick correction because I think it's important. The judge didn't strike down the the, the mandate uh, in the sense that they did that. They basically it was a legal argument that said that the CDC doesn't have the authority to make right. a mandate, um, the and that it has the authority to make a recommendation, and the Congress has to make a mandate, which the Congress hasn't done. And in fact, it, it's it, it 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 the Senate voted against it, and and clearly there isn't a, a majority in the can in the in the Congress to do that. So that means that it's really up to the individual authorities to make, uh, um, local authorities to make a decision. Like I just, Shane, you just said that that our local SEPTA uh, got rid of uh, the mask mandate. Uh, on yeah, SEPTA.
4: operationally, it struck down the mask mandate almost nationally because like, well, you know, the news is just the last 24 hours has just been transit organization after transit organization basically as mean, you, they're no longer going to enforce
0: the mask let, mask. Let me but me New ask, York subway still has it that that they claim out well, they let, came out let said, me
3: ask you a quick yeah. question then Shane because this relates to the combination of my what caught my eye in COVID and Adi's point in yours so Philadelphia has indoor mask mandates does that not up, does that <laughs> not so apply stupid. to I know I'm not asking <laughs> about the stupidity of it yeah. does that now not apply to it does not transit?
4: apply to SEPTA, SEPTA uh, somehow is uh I mean, you know, subway cars do not, uh, you know, you no longer have to wear a mask in a subway car. You have to wear a mask in the art museum or in like a giant giant department store, but no longer in a subway car in the city of Philadelphia.
3: I see. But is my my assessment about the likely impact on spread that, you know, on the 60 to 70% of people that, or maybe it's 70 to 80% that have had recent COVID that are heavily vaccinated, meaning at least. Let's call it three shots of two shots at least, but maybe three shots or more. The impact of this is likely to be small, but that there's no reason to believe it won't lead to increased spread among the unvaccinated. Is that is that the trade off that we're willing to make right now?
4: Well, no, uh, other than amazing. the unvaccinated uh, probably having uh, probably as much natural immunity at this point as the vax, uh, you know, as 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 the vaccinated do our artificial immunity.
3: I should say the uh, unvaccinated who are not protected by natural is what i meant
4: no, no 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 you're 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 complaining about riding the subway every i mean what 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 population of people are we talking about here <laughs> yeah you yeah. i'm gonna disagree a little bit
0: i think first okay. of all uh, um i think that uh getting rid of a mask mandate will have negligible effect on spread of covid um it'll have it might have some but we haven't been able to see that in the, we've had lots and lots of data Lots of localities that have had mask mandates, lots of them that haven't. We've had experiments done in different countries where there have been mask mandates and others that haven't. And there has been no measurable um, effect that is worth really noting. A couple of statistically significant effects, but, but small. So I would say that if there is going to be an effect of this, it's going to be small. The national transportation is really.
2: Uh, so, so hold on. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, one, I, I would want to be sure we'd want to do the lit review before we make comments. I, I have done a lot a great of great I, I think there has been economic studies in the U.S. looking at like state line differences, you know, Contiguous counties across state lines that face different mandates that show things, but I'm I'm vaguely working with something I've seen months ago. Yeah, I, I mean, the, I, I, I think I, 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 I want to point out one theoretical thing that matters here, though. And there, often these studies work with, and this might Shane, I'm sorry, you we've had this discussion on, on the show before. Often these studies work with the intent to treat rather than the treatment themselves. Yeah. and that's a much right. weaker thing. So it's like yeah. you know, policy, but as a policy actually enforced. The thing about these transportation mandates. Is that they're actually enforced. It's the one mandate that's the probably the best, most most uniformly enforced mandates of any that are out there. Well, on,
4: on airlines.
2: I so mean on, just, on, on, on public
4: transit, they're not I want, enforced.
2: Yeah. But so I want to is, is that right? Okay. Well, certainly on airlines they are. Well, Let's I mean, see. on
4: subway, I mean the subway I've ridden the subway many times and I've always worn a mask, but I mean it's certainly, you know, the, the, I, the, the, the driver's not it's not, not, doing it's not enforced. Yeah. Okay. I mean, on a bus where you they as you get on, they can tell you. I mean, or on a plane as you get on, but like in a subway. Who's there to enforce it?
3: Yeah, so I wanted to unpack Adi's comment from a statistical perspective for a second. So there could be many reasons why potentially a mask mandate could be ineffectual. So let me go through the arguments, Adi, and you tell me which ones apply. One could be masks are ineffective. I I think there's evidence that masks are effective. Would you agree to that?
0: Yes, I mean, but you have to caution that by saying in what, uh, in uh, for whom, and in what kind. I, so, I was,
3: yes. I was getting there. I'm yeah, just yeah, going yeah, one yeah. step at a time because I want to make sure people aren't interpreting your comment or any of our comments that masks are not effective. So let's be clear. So one possibility, which I don't think any of us here agree with, is that masks. Everyone could be adhering properly. That um, masks are even effective for the people that have other forms of protection but unfortunately mass are not effective that's not what we're saying so let's let's eliminate that second possibility is that there are mass mandates but people don't adhere to them or the people that do adhere to them are the people that would be protected anyway do we agree that that's another possibility that would make the marginal effectiveness the marginal improved effectiveness of mass minimal
2: um, yeah, th- sure. that's certainly the one that I was referring to. And that's
3: the one that I've exactly. Since- that's why I brought it up.
0: Yeah, I mean, let me go just go back to your your, your first one. And we've had this conversation at length, even when we talked about ourselves. I mean, and I made this point about Cade uh, to Cade about a restaurant for as an example. I don't believe that if I'm wearing a mask that it, and if I'm in long conversation with many people, it's going to uh, offer much effect unless I have a well fitted High quality
3: respirator. Oh, no, no, but you, you didn't let me finish my list. I had a longer list of items, which was going to well, include and, the and effectiveness so, so of no, the I, mask and, and other people wearing a mask around me. And I'm just saying, I just want to make sure, Adi, we're, we're precise. We're statisticians. I want to be precise when we make a statement that says something's not effective. There's many reasons, conditional reasons, that they could not be effective masks don't work even the best masks don't work or they work but they only work if other people are wearing them or they only work if exposures for a short period of time or oh they only work if i mean so we have to unpack all of those things that's what our listeners demand for us to do i think
0: we got we got to work backwards rather than from the top we have to ask yourself where do we know that they work and then go upwards from there and i can tell you we know they work in hospital settings medical settings masks seem to have very good uh, protective benefits. And now that's ask ourselves where we know that they don't work. We know that mandates, not the mask itself, but the mandates don't seem to be working. No, but you're
4: already, yeah. you're no. already confounding the two. Right. Things because of course I, I am. I, I, want, well, I, want, I, want, I want to take two I want to do that, that on the edges, right? So go to the edges, the extremes,
2: right? But so let's, let's hear what Shane's confound word. Well,
4: I just want to kind of reinforce that, like, you know, you you don't convolve the mandate with actual mask wearing Because I mean, I personally am of the opinion that mandates are useless because I don't think they're behavior changing. But the actual behavior is what we're focusing on here. Wearing a mask, I mean, it's worth discussing where and when wearing a mask is actually effective. You know, I I think we should separate that out from the issue of like whether or not a mask mandate changes really anybody's behavior or not. And so mask mandate, I, I mean, masks, you know, I agree with your t- two extremes. Definitely in hospital settings, indoors under prolonged exposures, masks work. Outdoors, masks don't, uh, don't, don't add anything. And there's a bunch of middle ground in between.
0: Well, the thing is, is that, that one of the reasons, why, one of the things that I think is really important at this stage of the pandemic, two, year, two years plus into this with massive vaccination, maybe not as high as it could be, but still very broad with lots and lots of natural immunity enormous amounts of not- natural immunity the transition the country should be making and this is what i'm telling telling to individually as well is that protection becomes your personal responsibility and i'm seeing you know and social media is lighting up with people saying you know i bought a ticket under the assumption that people are going to be masking and now now nobody's masking i don't want to go anymore and my response to someone like that is well you know what you should make sure that you should be you should be wearing a high higher quality mask than you had planned to wear before. Your pers- your safety is primarily your
4: responsibility. And I mean so that wor- that works as a, as a general principle. That so works.
2: When what in what I mean? There's lots of places where that doesn't work. Any no, and I mean it,
4: I mean under the old kind of model where so it doesn't really work in the you know your response. I mean. Again, the transmission of this virus is a public health it, it's a community. it's a public response, good, it's a public communal good response. Yeah, it's a commons. It's a And I, I mean, I'm kind of with you with vaccines because as far as I can tell, this is very broad stroke summary of vaccines is that they don't actually really help with transmission slash, you know, catching the virus. They just help with 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 kind of personal you know, like avoidance of serious health consequences, in which case it really is, it does vaccines end up being a very personal thing where it's like, well, you know, actually it doesn't help me in a kind of public communal sense very much from spreading the disease, but it definitely, you know, I can make the personal choice to be safer for myself. But for masking, I don't think masking falls under that same category because clearly masking does help prevent in a lot of different
0: situations. Here's the point right there. Is the a degree to which it helps in the situ- and outside of a certain uh, small set of situations is, and I would argue, very small, not so much that it is that it outweighs the incredible damage that long term mask wearing has had on our population. This is something that has been ignored for two years. The mantra that was talked around on, on social media is it's just not a big deal. The big, you know, f- my freedom, uh, uh, all this crap. Wearing masks is a bad thing. It has had enormous long-term damage, particularly to young people, particularly in school settings, particularly in, in situations, w- preschools are st- in New York are still wearing masks. There has been a toss-off that this is has not, not a negative thing to be walking around wearing masks. And at some point, we as a society have, dis- have argued that those things matter. And we can't well, just Adi, do, we,
2: do we do we do we risk painting with too broad a brush? I mean, can we not draw right. some distinctions between settings in which the damage might not be worth it and settings where we can? Look, hold on. It's inconvenient yeah. to wear a mask on an airplane. I get it. But that's I'm not, not long term damage. But I actually I would agree that uh, that wearing them on masks in public transportation
0: is I thought would be the last places to go. And and I was so very and, and by the way, the, the fact that the Congress couldn't get together to pass a extension of the mask ma- mandate legally was surprising to me. And it just shows a lot about our political dysfunction rather than the actual benefits of it. To me, we 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 as a country should have gotten rid of masks in preschools way before we got rid of them on airplanes. I I agree this is with another that. example.
2: We're just we we're not good with these, we're not good with nuances. These public yeah. health policies, we've learned. unfortunately over the last two years that they have to be really broad and we're not good with drawing distinctions that we feel like we need to be drawing uh, to have that optimal policy or closer to optimal.
4: And with this mask mandate, like kind of indoors, the part that I, you know, a lot of situations, unfortunately, where I think masks would be kind of effective, like restaurants theoretically, where you're indoors, you're sharing the same kind of circulated air for a couple hours. That probably is a situation where mask wearing would be effective if you weren't in a bar slash restaurant where you can't you couldn't use it anyway because <laughs> yeah. of the basic function of the bar slash yeah. restaurant. So, 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 so it's kind of what... like enforcing a mandate in a place where it can't actually be enforced logically i mean that that again is the part that doesn't make much sense to me we haven't so done things
2: I, 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 it. shane is still on about the philadelphia the philadelphia well philadelphia.
4: no i mean I, that's a general mass mandate thing i think yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that that's that's a situation, a context where it actually probably would be effective if it was yeah, in, in, sure. at all enforceable but it's not right
0: i mean i just made a point in my life on our show a couple of times the only place that it really bothers me is when i want to go to synagogue and there are many, many places that are still requiring them, and of course, enough that aren't that allowing me to choose. And that's ex- that's exactly the kind of setting that that I think um, has it in- continues to enforce the mandate under this. What I think is a mistaken belief
2: that it outweighs the costs. And that's okay, kind of, but better. but that that one, I mean, dang, Adi, that's a you have you have to know the probabilities exactly. Right now, yeah. that assessment, right? Because look, the down the, the, if there is any protection provided by your masking. There I mean, is syn- churches and synagogues. That's where we, I mean, disproportionately that's the, that's older the popula-
4: Exactly. that's I the mean, demographic that would be the, that would want th- to be the most cautious, but it's not,
3: it's also just not a measurement problem, which it is. Um, but it's also a, you have to put weights or a cost function on various outcomes. And that's why I think a lot of us agree with Adi's comment about preschools, but that's because the benefit to preschoolers is low. The cost to preschoolers is extraordinarily high. And given now that we have vaccines, given now we have more reasonable testing, et cetera, and better uh, you know uh, therapies and remedies, the probability of spreading and, and hurting teachers at a large degree can be mitigated if teachers choose to get vaccinated. That's why the benefits and the costs can be calculated in that way. But I don't think any of us two years ago when alpha was much more deadly, vaccines weren't available, would have had the same cost benefit. We still may have ended up with the same conclusion, but the costs and benefits and statistical probabilities wouldn't have been the same as they are today. That's why it's easy to say that about preschools. Mm -hmm. That's why.
4: Yeah. and, and, And I mean, I think the question, I mean, I like that kind of framing. So it really kind of like for like the synagogue issue, like you'd have to argue that our ability to treat COVID and a person's ability to kind of like the, you know, a person can choose to self-protect through vaccines. Like, does that now mean that the cost, you know, like, you know, that their safety is no longer as at as much of a risk as COVID that somehow the cost of wearing the mask has, has kind of gotten into the same realm. I mean, certainly near the start of COVID, you, nobody would argue that, I mean, that was by far our most vulnerable population. And it still is, I think, by far our well, most vulnerable Well, remember, the, the, one, but... the, first,
2: the first documented super spreader event in the U.S. was the church choir. Yeah. And it, that, that hung real heavy for a long time. Let, let me just throw out one
0: data point. I just came back from Boston where I attended my sister's synagogue where masks are optional. And the highest percentage of mask wearers were young people. What do you make of that? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure we can. You can. You, you can definitely fill fill in the gaps, but, but no, hold on.
2: I can't fill in the gaps for me.
0: Um, partly, it's because it's the elderly felt really, really, really anxious to get back to going, being in a normal environment. To them, it meant an enormous amount, and they generally feel really well well protected with multiple doses of vaccines. Many had COVID, and the existence of uh, Paxlovid, which is the by far the best antiviral. Um, which is generally accessible if you're if you're older than 65. If you're younger than 65, not not quite as easy. Um, and so they generally feel well protected and felt that it's it's a hardship to to have to wear a mask during the service. It's hard to talk. It's hard to say. There are lots of reasons. I want to get into that. Um, mm-hmm. But the younger people, I would argue that they have. Uh, um, I think their their risk profile is the, is is worse calibrated. That's that would be my my part part okay. of
2: it. Okay. By the way, let's qualify younger people. Now, I've heard you refer to younger people before, and suddenly realized you were talking about 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 (laughs) thirties, thirties and (laughs) forties. That's what I thought. (laughs) Okay, listen. One one different angle on this mask mandate change would be: look, we're going to change at some point. So, might we be at a point in the evolution of this thing where we might as well change it? I mean, what? How would we choose the optimal point at which to do away with the public transportation? Well,
3: I'd like I'd like COVID levels to be down, which they they are nationally. They aren't in some places. I'd like COVID, if you get it, to be less, uh, you know, less risky in terms of hospitalization and death, which we seem to have evidence of that. I'd like it to be warmer months where uh, people can spend more time outside than inside. Um, I'd like to have more evidence that vaccines and other types of therapies actually work. We have some of that evidence. We have a lot of that evidence right now. So, to me, in some sense, um, you know, we could debate whether if someone not wearing a mask infinitesimally affects me, is that an okay thing? Um, We can debate that or a separate issue, but I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that COVID levels as a whole are down, certainly hospitalization and deaths are way down, Um, warm weather's coming across the U.S. and all over the U.S. This seems like an, an opportune time to get rid of the mask mandates.
0: I would agree with what you're saying. I'm going to point out one thing. Totally anecdotally, I think there's a lot more COVID going around than the test numbers are showing. I don't think people are testing. Oh, of course. We know that we
3: talked about. Yeah, we talked about that last week on the show, which yeah, is okay. that we have to go back to Shane's, you know, look, we've talked, Shane's brought up this concept of uh, doing random sampling for a long time. The other possibility is we know it's going up because there are areas, as you know, they're doing wastewater testing. Yep. And that's fairly accurate at this point. And they know that COVID levels are going up. And uh, so, yeah, we, we know that levels are higher, much higher than, uh, you know, they're reporting right now from self-reported testing.
2: Eric, have you seen... Do you know of a site that you could share where people can follow those that, that wastewater stuff? It varies by municipality, but... Is yeah, there so th- that,
3: it's a good question. I don't know if there's a centralized place. I only know it because, you know, we have a summer home somewhere and it happens to be one of the municipalities that tracks it and you can actually okay. track the amount of uh, COVID in the wastewater. Um, but I, as far as I know, there isn't a centralized site, but various municipalities are tracking it. So, so g-
4: given... given that uh cases are going up but given how you know non-random and and how like noisy that statement is um and given the further kind of advances in treatment and 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 you know lack of hospitalization and serious outcomes are are we are we just a a few a leg away from increase are are we going to see another kind of increase in hospitalizations and deaths or are we just not going to see that this time around
2: so maybe seasonally my my i think the bet most likely is shy a new variant landing i think people are talking about worrying in the fall you know go back to school go back to cold weather go back to people staying inside and we're likely to see a bump in the let's, also, guess,
3: let's also let's also add of, in kate reinfection and let's also add in that natural immunity doesn't last forever yeah. and so uh You know, I think and plus some people may have had previous variants of COVID, which is even less effective as uh, preventing uh, new ones. And so I think, you know, I think to get the same level of protection as we have now, you put in my view, the number one, which is it better not be a new variant. But number two, people better start thinking about getting more shots of vaccine because people that got a shot six months, nine months, a year ago, there's not I mean, even the. I mean, obviously Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, have an incentive, financial incentive to talk about the fact that, hey, you know what, six months, nine months, that's past the effectiveness. But I think the data is starting to show that that's absolutely true. And Mm -hmm. so I'm concerned that people also have vaccine fatigue, that people may not choose to get vaccinated at the rates that they were before. We have evidence of that.
0: I have to say, Gary, I'm a little, I mean, it looks like that the, the wear off is more like six weeks rather than six months.
2: Is it that fast?
0: That's what the Israeli study was of with the fourth booster. That the, the but, detection but infection. Define, define no, no, right. no, I'm
3: not talking about infection. I'm talking yeah. about hospitalization and right, death. Right,
0: but it doesn't look like a fourth, um, a fourth shot has ha, produces a, a noticeable increase in your in your ineffectiveness in terms of severe illness. Um is that Maybe true, a little yeah? bit. Maybe a little bit with with uh, in the 65 mm-hmm. and up population, uh, which is why that's the population that is really more interested should be more interested in getting m- m- more regular boosters. Okay, so, so Audi, let Audi, let me younger. let me
2: let me characterize my understanding of it and tell me how I'm getting this wrong. Yeah. I think about yes, the risk of infection, the, the, the protection against infection drops quickly. Very but, quick. And we've been sobered to discover that the protection against hospitalization also drops over whatever, four to six months. And we're talking about the protection offered by the vaccine dropping from like 90 or 95% down to in the thirties or something. Now I would, I I'm operating under the assumption that when you get that fourth boost, the fourth shot, second booster, you get it back up to 95% and it starts drifting down over the next six months down to 35 again. What's wrong with that?
0: That's that's not the right. That's not the right. Those are not the right numbers. The, if you have a, a fourth booster in particular, Offers very little increased protection against uh, infection and hospitalization.
3: It's well, let me still, just tell you. Let me read you an article. The, let me read the, you an article from this yeah. week from the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, I'll just read you. Um, I'll just read you the punchline. But then I'm happy to read you the numbers. Our data provide this New England Journal of Medicine. Our data provide evidence that a fourth dose of mRNA vaccine is immunogenic, safe, and somewhat efficacious, primarily against symptomatic disease, and the degree of efficaciousness they find is somewhere between 30 to 40%. So I'm just reading you from an article yeah, yeah, literally I, I, within the last so, week from okay, the New England so, Journal of Medicine. So is that
0: Israeli data? Is that the one from Israeli data or is it someone else? Um, because the, the New England Journal published Israeli data about six weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago. And their basic point was that the effectiveness against infection was very small, maybe 30%, and went away fairly quickly. And that, it, and that the only group from which decrease in serious illness was noticeable were the people for whom serious illness was most common, uh, which was the uh, age 65 and up. And they basically had no power at the younger ages because there were just too few cases uh, in a s- fairly small country. Oh, so it's uh, not, it's
4: not the, it's not, the I say, it's,
2: it's, the it's not an
4: absence necessarily an absence of effectiveness. There's just an right. absence of the ability. That's to right. But, effect- but the reason why we have an absence of evidence is the
0: first, uh, t- given two shots and the booster is so good already yeah and that le- left you with so so few cases and the and uh and there's so few people in the, un- the purely naive and unvaccinated to get a a, a a a good um uh group to compare it to that's what's happening with all these observational studies we
4: just are running out of pure pure yeah, people i i just you know i mean i i was kind of yeah. The start of this I was almost hearing like oh the b- fourth booster's not worth it cuz it's not effective. You're
0: No, we don't know The fourth
4: booster's right. you know perhaps not worth it for all but you know 65 plus right now just because that's right. The the the, the you know up to third, you know the you know vaccine plus you know it's single good. booster good. is still effective enough to cover That's it. right.
3: That's right. Let, exactly. let, me go back. let me just also go back to something I said along uh maybe it was three or four weeks ago which is uh, everything you said, Audi, by the way, is consistent. It was the Israeli article I was looking at here uh, the, from the Israeli Medical Center data that I was looking at. But, you know, you also have to, your statement also has to condition on a lot of things. So you, you and I'm not saying you're wrong. There's age. Mm-hmm. When did I get that third booster shot? Have I ever had covid Do I have other comorbidities associated Mm -hmm. with it? So the, the thing I just want to make sure we're talking about is, remember I said, if I could have my dream data, I'd love the probability of, let's say, serious illness or death conditional, and I could list 500 things that I'd like a conditional on, and I'd like a prediction tool based on all 500 of those things. So I think the thing we have to be careful about is making marginal probability statements, just like about masks, about fourth shots that may be true, for a large fraction of the population, but might not be true for 5%, 10 20% of the population, depending on what other event. So I'm, I'm, I don't even want to talk about anybody else on this show but me. I'm going to be careful in the future about making marginal probability statements when what's really more important, I think, given today, are conditional probability statements.
2: Is another way of saying that, Eric, that we've learned that, uh, the, in, in this domain how important heterogeneity is? I've been done.
3: listening to Shane Jensen for, well, we've been friends for 20 plus years, but I've been listening to him on his radio show for eight years, eight years talking about heterogeneity. And especially in COVID, he's been talking about heterogeneous effects, regional heterogeneity, age. Adi, from the beginning, talked about they found the most dominant factor is age, then goes, you know, maybe other comorbidities, etc. And yes, that, that's what would generate conditional probabilities.
2: All right, team, Well, let's leave it on that. We can't hit that heterogeneity. We can't beat that heterogeneity drum enough. So it's a good note to end our COVID conversation on. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. This is Chris Kelly from the Sacramento Kings. You're listening to Business Radio on Sirius XM.
4: American Top 40. We're heading for a brand new number
0: one song. Casey Kasem counts the hits that shined in the 70s. It's time for this hour's long distance dedication. Our letter
4: is postmarked Billings,
2: Montana. Hear the actual 40 song countdown that aired during this week of the Super 70s. Keep your
0: feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. American Top 40. Saturdays at
3: noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. With replays throughout the weekend on 70s on 7. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM rolling into the second quarter with the whole team. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. These guys are all statistics profs. Eric is also a marketing prof. And this is Cade Massey, practice professor in operations, information, and decisions. You guys can jump in here and join the conversation if you'd like to. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter. Easiest way to reach us, Twitter, our handle there at WMoneyball at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics, sometimes COVID. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Give us suggestions, complaints, ideas, whatever you got. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag via email. The address there is moneyball at Moneyball at Wharton upen.edu. we do hear from our listeners we read everything that comes in we reply and we get as much of it on the air as possible we love to hear from you all right guys open lines quarter here i know there have been some debatable issues in the world of baseball lately so what do you got what happened here so i know heck we started trading text last week about kershaw's perfect game i started scrambling for a way to watch the dang thing and then i got word that he got pulled what has been the, the more you know? Now that we've calmed down and collected ourselves, what is the position on that decision?
0: I, I'd like to get started because I want to make a quick speech before we before I answer. <laughs> um, one of the things that makes baseball so special and really different from the other major sports is that it's a beautiful combination of an individual and a team sport. And when a, a single pitcher does something like that, uh, pitches a perfect game. I think there's only 23 of them
3: in yeah, 23
0: in major, in major League Baseball history. It is a time I was tweeting everyone I knew who liked baseball to come and people were like, I'm going to watch, find a TV, get online, watch that game. This is a classic moment. One that we really cannot, uh, undervalue. And within minutes he was pulled. And these are the things that make the game special. And we didn't get to see that play out. So the, that, that's my preamble and the, uh, for, and here's the, the, so I thought it was a terrible thing to take him out. Um, unless he took himself out, in which case that's fine. Um, and the reason for that is that I just don't think it is that, that there's any data that suggests that pulling a pitcher after 80 pitches is uh, somewhat worse than hundred. It just, it seems to be something that people tend to believe rather than they know works or saves pitchers. Um, and secondly, and this was the plan, but, and, and I also believe that it helps the game enormously to have these, these events happen. The counter argument basically says, yeah, but from the point of view of the manager and the team, this was a good decision um, because it, they're going to win the game no matter what. And the worst, the last thing they do is, is want to have Kershaw get hurt again. And so from the point of view of the team, the Dodgers, this was a hundred percent correct thing to do and no other, no other choice from the point of view of the game, I think a bad thing. So the question is how do we make it both, um, both parties of this, the, pl- the managers and the players be lined up with the fans
3: So let me just say, uh, obviously, I agree with you entirely, Adi. I think one of the things that's wonderful about the game of baseball, which hasn't been destroyed by all the things they've done to it, is you never know what you're going to see when you see a baseball game. You might see a triple play. You might see a perfect game. That's one of the, you might see somebody hit three or four home runs in a game. That's one of the lures of baseball. For me, it's always been one of the lures. That's why I don't leave a game, even if the score is 10 to nothing, you might see something in that game that's rare that you've never seen before. And you say, I was there. Now, here's, I wish all the analytics. We just had someone on Cato remind me the name. we just had the person that was doing biomechanics on, right? And so if we had proper measurement, Let's imagine someone came to the Dodger manager and said, you know what? You should pull Kershaw, his biomechanics are fading. Or you should pull Kershaw, we now have evidence that there's more strain on his tendons than there were before. Or we should pull Kershaw because we know the effort that he's using in his legs has increased. Those are totally different things. I'm hoping we get to a day where this lore and myth about, well, we said 80 pitches and whatever and this and that that we actually have data to support these types of decisions. Because without that, to me, it is destroying the game of baseball.
2: But they must have data. They must have – I mean, if anybody has – data on anything, it's going to be the so, – well, me, I, I say that, but the, let real let me, quickly. And real, me, I'm going to say this about data on injuries. This is something that we heard from Jimmy Buffy last week. The Jimmy Buffy,
3: motion, thank you. Jimmy, Jimmy Buffy.
2: Buffy. The Reboot Motion guest that we had last week, yeah. he said he started out modeling – Um, injuries essentially. And and he says it's really problematic because you don't know exactly when the injury
3: occurred. But of course, I want that data live in real time in the game to decide in the seventh inning whether I should uh, pull Kershaw. I want that data to the manager live. I want like a heat map of Kershaw's body on some tablet device in the dugout. All right, but you would need to
2: know what it means.
3: Yeah, okay, And
2: and, 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 and Buffy's going to tell us that it's hard to know what it means because it's hard to model something that is so vague
3: yeah but i i i I believe i'm a believer in supervised i'm a believer in supervised ai but go ahead i'm not really
4: arguing with you guys but it is worth noting that the best data we do have the best like closest thing to the amazing sci-fi situation that you just described is kershaw himself and how he's feeling and he did not he actually thought you know he did not object to being pulled Right. He actually, so right. He, yeah, exactly. he himself was, you know, thought did not think it was a bad idea that he was pulled, even given the historical, you know, sort of impact. I mean, he's obviously had an incredibly storied career. And I I think a, a fun ensuing discussion would be whether he's the best currently existing, you know, pitcher that we're watching uh, in, in the game. But, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, he, his, his legacy is well established. Perhaps he doesn't want, but I mean, still the fact that he was willing to leave a perfect game situation and support his manager does suggest that, may, you know, I mean, you know, that that's the closest thing we have to kind of a, a biomechanical argument at this point. Right. So, so let me follow up with two things. First of all,
0: yes, he was. And one of the reasons why he was willing to leave is he's been around for 15 years. He is Clayton and Kershaw for God's sakes. He's not, <laughs> yeah. a, he's not a guy in his second year looking to make a name for himself. Um, and wouldn't, 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 the last thing on earth would want to be pulled out. Um, But Jimmy Buffy, he actually tweeted out that, uh, that Kershaw's uh, miles per hour in his fastball had dropped five miles per hour from 91, 92, down to 85, 86 in the course of the, of the 80 pitches he threw. Kershaw was tired. And if there's anything we do know, about biomechanics and pitching is that when you get injured is when you try to ramp it up when you're exhausted, Mm
4: -hmm. that turns Mm -hmm. out to be. uh, I mean, again, counter-argument. Why? I mean, why didn't he just not ramp it up and keep, I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, just keep running per, own... perfect, perfect games need, need two combinations, a, a pitcher that's really on and an offense that's really off. And that offense could, I mean, he could, have you know, just keep throwing like 85 mile right. per hour slop until they get a hit. And then, you know. <laughs> then get out of the game. That was, right. I, that I mean, he only had to get through six more outs.
2: Of, uh, yeah, I
0: mean, that, I mean, you know. I have to say, why didn't he just throw up some batting practice yeah. for a few innings? They were up seven-nothing. And then let just go for it. I mean, and, and that, that to me was the right answer. It's not exactly if it was a yeah, zero zero yeah. game and he needed to get the guy out in the world series, just go up there and lob it in. Like you would be like, you'd yeah. be cooling down and that would have been fun. In fact, so a couple of comments from my inside baseball people were said, it probably would have been a better decision to just let him go out there and, and just and just play softball and see what happened. Um, and essentially as you are trying, but here's a, here's a, a thought experiment. Would Clayton Kershaw agreed to come out if he had a $5 billion prize. Imagine if the league said anyone throws a per, per game, you get five million dollars. Um, for the from the league's perspective, that's a great win for the for the game. They'll barely ever have to give it out. And number one, and number two, it'll keep the interest of the of the of the players to want to do this. Because I, it, I think
3: uh, Clayton Kershaw's wealth, no, he would not do it, <laughs> yeah. but oh, given.
2: Eric, hold on. No, no, it's easy for you to say. Once you had that wealth, you—I mean—you continue to pay attention. Apparently, we have—we had a basketball. Who was a basketball player that signed in for one play, gave the intentional foul for his, you know, three hundred sixty thousand dollars bonus last week? This happened. It was the last regular season game, and it's like, well, the kid makes so much money. Does he really worry about the few hundred thousand dollars? Yes, he worries about a few hundred thousand dollars. So, hold on. Let's just embrace the concept here for a moment and critique it because it's interesting. Adi is saying the league should give prizes for these singular events that might be overridden lately by perhaps too many analytics or too much concern do you like this idea is it the league's business to get in there would there be any backlash if a guy gets hurt he sticks well yeah the teams the owner better be a team based part of that prize too how would the owners
4: ever approve this i mean right i mean because it's basically taking you know right you know it takes their uh, leverage to take a person you know it just creates like additional rancor between them and the players if they still want to pull kershaw and now he's got like, you know, feels like he's been cheated out of money. Because or or of-
3: Shane, let's be statisticians. He's got to go play the expected value game. Let's see. I've yeah. got probably a one fifth chance of making yeah. it all the way here. That's five million. You owe me a million dollars for pulling me out of here. You give me a million and I'm out. Otherwise, so, I'm going for the so, five million prize.
0: Let, let me just say this wasn't actually my idea. This, this idea came from Sam Andre Cohen. Um, and he actually had another one. Um, which was to award the teams um, potentially a between draft, extra draft pick. No, no. That's um, what Shane was saying. Give yeah. the, the teams a
4: bonus too.
3: Then right, all you of a, a sudden, doing, now we've got something to talk and about. And every but, fan
4: that's there gets a free hot dog. Give the fans <laughs> a bonus. Everybody wins. But,
0: but the, real, the real marketing problem is how do you incentivize the players, the managers, the owners to do things which are good for the game, but not good for any one individual. It's a classic, you know, tragedy of the commons kind of conundrum where we know that there are certain things that are much better for the game. For example, like speeding the goddamn thing up, but no individual player
2: wants to do that. Well, you, you you do it by some, you've got a, the classic is either you've got a hegemon who can bear the cost or you've got a regulatory device. Yeah, and that's what that's what the refund front office is for.
3: You saw the article about that, right? It just came out today that they're in the minor leagues. They're using you know the the pitch timing device. It's uh, there's been no less runs scored, which owners will want and players will want, and the games have been shortened by about twenty five minutes. So the article was basically saying it may well be coming to Major League Baseball soon because twenty five
2: minutes. Yeah, Yeah, cut off the game. What are they doing to get twenty five minutes out of the game? I think it's an eighteen second clock.
3: Yeah, pitch clock. Yeah my gosh
2: that's yeah. a lot of time
3: that's a lot of time you agree kate i mean that's going from like whatever let's say it goes from three hours three hours 10 to now back to the old days 235 245 totally different game now
0: yeah totally and you're different.
2: saying no no impact on no um, impact on, on runs
3: scored or, nope super interesting
2: all right so there was another controversial decision at least in some corners uh somebody intentionally walked with the bases loaded and I, Eric is up in arms about it. Was Joe well, it, was,
4: Matt, it was Joe Madden that <laughs> called for the walk. So that, that was the man making that decision. Yeah. Let me just say, by the Everybody's way. Everybody's favorite manager in terms <laughs> of analytical
3: decision making. Well, the, fa- the fun part about it was, um, Kate, you'll love this. It's only happened three times in 70 years. Two of them by Joe Madden and oh, the, really? yeah last time was in i forget if it was 08 or 09 when he was with the rays but that time by the way just to show you he walked barry bonds mm. with the bases loaded and, and this time work? and this time it was was it who did they walk was it it wasn't vlad guerrero was. Seager. it was chris Seeger. oh Seager, or they walked and Seager. they were down
0: i mean they were down four to two i think and no no was, they
3: were down it was no the score was Seager, yeah. two to two i think This made it three to two, and then a sack fly was by the way, there this walk wasn't even with like two outs. This walk, so a sack fly followed it, which made the score four to two. So there was the walk run and the sack fly run. Yeah, and worth
4: knowing the previous ones, like the Barry Bonds was, I mean, A was Barry Bonds, and they were up by two runs. And so intentionally walking right. him, and, and
0: he was a. Pinch you can hitter. at least
4: maybe do an expected value calculation there, where it's like that makes some amount of sense. What Joe Madden's doing right now is just like changed, I don't know, like just Bonds. showing off.
0: Yeah, Bonds was a was a pinch hitter, and the and the, the guy behind him was crap. Which is one of the only times you have to have a lead, two outs, and the person who, who's yeah. behind you is awful. That's so not did the Madden situation. Did
2: Madden just misremember the specifics of his previous success with this policy? Like just well, he actually claimed that
0: he did it to rile them up. I mean, talk about the anti-analytics. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Okay, Eric is gonna have to slip away here in a minute. And before he goes, I want to get a first hand report from the Sixers game last night, which I know he attended. So they're up to, to nothing in the first series. How are you feeling about the Sixers these days, Eric?
3: They've got one. At least from the Toronto perspective, whose tallest player is Siakam at six nine, um, the Sixers have an unstoppable force in Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. And you can't stop Embiid because unlike the big men of the past, um, if he's not happy getting the ball enough, he'll just demand the ball in the backcourt and bring the ball up the court himself. Um, <laughs> you can get him beat the ball at the half court line and he can take people off the dribble at whatever he is seven one two seventy. And so um And then he got the entire team of Toronto in foul trouble. And so he, uh, that's the thing. And he has to be doubled or triple teamed by Toronto. They have no real big men. And so now what happens is what a surprise. Danny Green is wide open. Tobias Harris is wide open. Maxie's wide open. All of a sudden, guys that are 35 to 40% three-point shooters look like they're the next coming of Reggie Miller and Steph Curry because, as we've talked about this many times, if I'm wide open for three, any good three-point shooter is going to hit half of them. And that's Mm -hmm. what happened. And so Sixers are going to beat Toronto unless unless Joel Embiid gets injured and they're trying to rough him up heavily. I've never Mm. seen a more physical game. There was tremendous physical play in that game. He was hammered every time he got the ball intentionally. It was intentional. Mm. Um, But no, the Sixers have done a good thing. Mm. They have Joel Embiid. Look here. Think about their starting lineup. Joel Embiid, Danny Green, lethal three-point shooter. Tobias Harris is a 40% three-point shooter. Maxie this year, 43% three-point shooter. And then James Harden, three-point shooter. So they've got Joel Embiid and four other guys that can all shoot threes. That's what we've been waiting for in Philadelphia. As Adi always says, three is 50% greater than two. And we got one guy who shoots 60% from two. And by the way, Joel Embiid's a 37% three-point shooter. So he's not a potzer either when it comes to shooting threes. So that's the team. Now the question becomes, when any of those five guys come off the court... What's the backup plan? And so that's the, that's the challenge the Sixers face. If those five guys could play 48 minutes, I'm putting the Sixers in the NBA Finals right now. Problem is, Embiid gets tired, can only play 32 to 35 minutes, and the plus minus of the Sixers is awful when he's off the court. So that's where we stand. They're a great team. With By the way, in the trade that got them James Harden, this is what everyone's concern is, they got rid of a lot of depth. They got rid of Seth Curry. They got rid of Andre Drummond, who was the backup center. They're now Paul Reed, who's not Andre Drummond. And so that's the concern is that they gave up like their sixth, seventh player. They gave up Simmons, who was never really playing anyway, but they gave up too much depth. And the minute the starters are out, that's when they're going to struggle.
2: Eric, how did they fare against the Celtics in their regular season series this year? Because the Celtics five thirty eight loves the Celtics. Celtics figured out how to play defense late at some point in the season, and I'm curious how that matchup. Matt is. Matt
3: can look it up. I, I have I'm I'm going to guess and say they were one and three against the Celtics. I don't think the Sixers had a winning record against the Celtics this year. I matter mm-hmm. of fact, I didn't I don't think they had a winning record against the Celtics. I don't think they had a winning record against the Bucs. Mm-hmm. One of the very fortunate things, in my view, is they don't reseed in basketball. So I'm hoping the look, the dream scenario is for the Sixers, right? They're going to beat Toronto, we hope. Then they're going to play the Heat. That's not the Celtics or the Bucks. Mm-hmm. The Celtics and the Bucks are going to beat each other up in the 2-3 matchup. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully the Sixers can play the winner of that after they've gone seven. And maybe the Sixers can beat. By the way, there's no reason to believe the Sixers are going to beat the Heat, who are the number one seed in the East. But let's say they do. They're at least oh. then in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, so the, Is
4: that cal- calculus totally messed up if the, Celtics, uh, if the Nets beat the Celtics?
3: <laughs> no, because they don't recede in basketball. Then the Nets and the Bucks can beat each other up right, okay. in seven game series. And then the Sixers still, that's the beauty, Shane, is that we don't play the Celtics, Bucks, or Nets until the Eastern Conference Finals, no matter what, if we make it there.
2: Eric, another question about the Sixers and, the, and about injuries kind of in general. You talked about how rough the Raptors were playing Embiid. What's the sense of the shape that he's in arriving at the playoffs? And is that any. In any way, a function of how they've played him over the course of the season, have they have, either Break. by his training or by the, or the, by the club's um, systems, have they kept him healthier?
3: I think the Sixers backed off a tiny bit at the end of the season, the last three or four games, but let's remember with ten games to go in the season, there were four teams heat i'll go in the order in which they ended up heat, Celtics. Bucks Sixers, that were all within one game of each other for the number one seed. And so the Sixers didn't really back off much at the end of the season because they had a lot to play for. Oh, thanks, Matt. Matt says they were two and two against the Celtics. So they had a lot to play for in those last ten games. And they ended up, by the way, in the four seed, which is in one... I mean, I'd rather be the four than the three right now because then you'd be in the triangle of the Celtics, Bucks, Nets. But I'd rather be the one than the four. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think Joel Embiid is in as good a shape as he's been in, but let's also remember, you know, I know this is going to sound strange. Um, He's 28. Now I know that it's not old. It's not old, (laughs) but, but remember this is a man that's missed two years due to injuries. He's a large man. He's played five years. The last three years, he's played a lot of games. So, no, he is worn down by the end of the season more so than you see other players. Big men wear down at the end of the season. So my big concern is that, I, look, I want the best Obviously, case is the Sixers beat the Raptors in four. Then he has another week to rest before the next series because it makes a big difference to Embiid.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Eric. We're going to lose him for the rest of the show, oh, not the rest of the show, but for the next quarter or so. Thank you for being here. Gentlemen, uh, any other corner of the NBA playoffs have your eye lately? Anything – I saw that the Warriors are up. They, they, they're they up, and they're playing this new uh, death lineup, the small, small ball, basically, that they're having a lot of luck with. The article about the game last night was, I think, unusually thoughtfully written. There are a number of stats on Curry's performance. They're limiting him because he came off that foot injury late in the season, so he only played – 22, 23 minutes last night and in that 22 or 23 minutes he was plus 32 his plus minus you know prorated for the game was plus 32 and i i mean we I'd, I'd love to see the full distribution of you know some minimum amount of time what's the individual game level plus minus ratings in the nba and where that really stands but it sounds extraordinarily high the other stat that I got a kick out of was this was the first time in his career he scored 30 plus points in less than 25 minutes. And you might say, well, how often does he not play 25 minutes? And the, the, I, this I thought was an advance in sports writing guys. The sports writer says, and it's not because he hasn't done that very often. He's played less than 25 minutes, 48 times in his career. So in a sample size of 48 games, he's never, you know, the most prolific scorer in our generation, certainly and one of the most ever, so this stat is sure. only
4: uh, a full game stat where he's played that little amount of time. It's not like they were looking across all windows where
2: he's in a game. Correct. No full game. Yeah, yeah Full, yeah, game, yeah, full yeah. game stats for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's fun to see. It's fun to see those guys um, having some luck. Know they've been down for a couple of years, they won so easily for a couple of years. We might have taken for granted, maybe even we wanted some competition for them, but now they're back to the underdogs. Yeah, and I mean, for
4: for, for my perspective, and maybe I'm biased because I've always thought their game style was fun. I mean, I even got tired of them winning all the time, but they're those couple years were enough to recharge my, my batteries. They're kind of a fresh new upstart, as far as I'm concerned. I don't, you know, I don't have any problem with the Warriors. I think it'll be interesting to sort of see to the extent that they, you know, I mean, cause Phoenix, you know, just in terms of the regular season, like just looks so dominant, mm-hmm. right. Over mm-hmm. everybody else in the West, whether that dominance will kind of translate into the playoffs. I mean, I think they're only up, you know, one oh on their current series. And I, I doubt, I doubt there'll be challenged much in that, but as they kind of keep going forward, I think the story will be kind of like, does a team like the warriors that has more of that kind of playoff experience How how does that kind of go up against a team that, like at least on paper, and certainly in terms of regular season is should dominate them?
2: Right. Well, the thing about the regular season, though, is that that the Warriors never really had their guys together.
4: Yeah.
1: Like
2: they probably they 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 have certainly less than a full game worth of minutes with their preferred five on the court. It literally it happened for a minute or two until they got to these playoffs. And so it's kind of a new game. And I and I like your pointing to the Suns because hopefully we get to see that. It'll be fun. All right, guys, that has been a a second quarter here at Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open topics quarter. Quarter, a short one in advance of a longer interview in q4 this is kate massey in this quarter with audie weiner and shane jensen guys I, we talked a little baseball last time another some more baseball that it, we're getting you know we're getting more data under our belts storylines are beginning to emerge i'm sure y'all have a few so i'm curious even i've read some baseball that's kind of catching my eye. so tell me about suzuki for example tell me about whatever storylines have caught your eye early this season
0: Suzuki's interesting because whenever you bring over a player from Japan, you don't know what necessarily is a a, a little bit of external randomness. You got it. You got to wonder what the die is going to show, but this guy looks like he's legit. Um, he hits it hard. He's got four home runs. He's hitting his OPS is like 1.4 something, uh, 1.5 right now. Right now. And he's also extremely fast. Uh, if anything, the only thing that seems to be a little bit of weak, he he's looks like a, a minus defender. Uh, okay, hold but, on, hold on. Yeah.
2: Tell us, everyone doesn't know who we're talking about. This guy plays for the Chicago Cubs, right? Yeah. What, what position does he play?
0: I think he's in right field.
2: Okay, um, so he's an outfielder. Um, when you talk about being fast, are you talking about in the field? Prince, or or Prince on, the, on, the, on, the, on the baseline, on the base pass. I mean,
0: they have a a baseball savant, which is MLB's uh, uh, tracking, public tracking network, um, rates him as one of the fastest outfielders and certainly in the corner outfield.
2: Okay, so I think you included in your opening commentary two observations that are purely analytics-based. You said he hits the ball hard. I'm guessing yeah. that's exit velocity. You're reporting an actual, you, this is- sm- Well, there's a couple control. of ways they do it.
0: One of them is the, there's a bunch of, all these the data is great. So that one of them is the percentage of barrels per batted ball. Uh, yeah, so,
2: so this is, I love this idea. So tell us about barrels.
0: So barrels is basically a way to just decide whether you really hit the ball hard. Uh, um, they also have a hard hit percentage. But whether you are squared up and hit it.
2: Um, barrels is such a better name. So why do they call it barrels, Adi?
0: Well, that's what I, I can show you. If this, were a, if this were not a radio show, I'd be holding up the bat that I have in my, in my office here. Um, but we'll have to just, uh, the listeners will have to imagine it. Um, but quite literally, the portion of the bat that uh, at the end of it, where you really want to hit it is called the barrel of the bat, as opposed to say the handle or the end. Um, so hitters that square up, get the barrel of the bat on the ball. And, they, and me-
2: they measure this that precisely. So what qualifies? They must have a cutoff.
0: It's a cutoff. Have... This, is a, this is definitely a Tom Tango thing in MLB. Um, it is inferred. It's not actually measured. Um, and okay. I have to go look at the definition. But there's something called, called hard hit percentage, um, and as, which is something that's, that obviously is related but slightly different. And one of the ways this is used early in the season, you just take a look at a, a hitter like, say, Stanton or Judge, or even, say, Christian Yelich. These guys are not having a great start, but are are really hammering the ball just right at somebody. Um, And in a 10 games, you can easily have a pretty large uh, variance from expected uh, based on bad luck over the course of the season, you don't expect it. So you'd, you'd basically say that Stanton and Judge and Yelich and these guys are going to do well over the season, even though they haven't done so well in the beginning. But Suzuki mm-hmm. looks like he's squaring up. Yeah. Uh, so he's got four home runs. That could be just a little bit of luck, or it could also be this guy's hitting it. And so at this point in the season, they have about, you know, 30 f- batted balls, and and that's more than just a uh, – that's a reliable number.
2: So r- real, real quickly, let me just – this is – something that's emerged in baseball in recent years and it's these are more fundamental measures of performance which is what we're always looking for to kind of condition out noise i think audi you've ref- you've used the term peripherals these are considered like peripherals yeah yeah that right, that's right that's all right, right let me just maddie has dug up the barreled definition it's a batted ball requires an exit velocity of at least 98 miles an hour at that speed ball struck with a launch angle between 26 and 30 degrees always garner barreled classification If it's over 98, the range of launch angle expands. So they've decided something that qualifies as barrel. And what I like about it is that it boils all that, you know, mathy stuff down to this very intuitive name. So we don't like categories. We don't like thresholds much, but for selling something to the public and for making it easy to use, it's very effective.
4: Yeah. And it's worth noting Suzuki's hard hit percentage is at 50 right now. So 50% the MLB average is, you know, down in the high thirties. And so, you know, substantial difference there. Uh, I will kind of, I'm only going to push back on sort of like this kind of these peripherals, specifically things like the hard hit balls as being entirely like, Oh, well, the, you know, they're much more diagnostic than the outcome or at least attributing kind of the difference entirely to bad luck. I look at a player like Stanton or Gallo or there's playing on the Red Sox like this, where they hit the ball hard, but th- – and, and a lot of those goes directly at guys. And it, th- you, you can't attribute that all to bad luck because they're shifted. All yeah, right. You know, so they're, that, pre- like, they're more like, I mean, predictable. They basically, the fact that they – you know, Gallo seems to always just hit right into the shift. And, I mean, that's not really bad luck
3: because, you know, it's very
4: predictable. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know – I mean, it's bad luck for Gallo that he ca- somehow can't manage to not do that. Okay, so but, hold on. Do um, they, they
2: baseball has a measurement for everything? They must have a ba- measure yeah. for like predictability or like the effectiveness yeah, of or a or the. Yeah, I mean,
4: it, w- it would. Be, I mean, you should probably could use a mixture of different peripherals to kind of pull out how much of them kind of hitting it hard. Like you know, he hit it hard, and it was to a spot where it, that it shouldn't have been. So you know, there, caught there's enough.
0: two definitions of barrel that Maddie gave us. One of them is basically a really hard hit ball, 98 miles per hour higher in the 26 to 30 degree range, which generally is a, that's, that's going to be close to going out um, if it's higher than that. And then if it's even higher then you can even be more of a line drive. It's so it's looking really towards home runs. The other classification is a batting average of 500 or a slugging percentage of 1.5 based on, uh, on essentially comparing it to to other balls hit at that velocity and launch angle. Now Mm -hmm. launch angle is, is vertical, Um, that's what we call launch angle. Obviously in Gallo's case, he does tends to have the bad kind of horizontal angle, um, and always hitting it right at where the, where the opponents have lined up their defenders. And obviously his goal is to get it out of the ballpark. Um, that seems to not be happening by the way, home run rates do seem to be down this year. I don't know whether we have enough data to be conclusive about it. Um, I know there's been talk about humidors being used in all the, all the, uh, on all the parks last year, they're used in only about a third of them. And that, that should make the balls a little heavier. its um, certainly, uh, you know, early when it's cold is also when. Yeah. Know, I, I right
4: assume high, when um, you say that, it's kind of comparing it to other Aprils. You, or whatever. Yeah. And, you'd yeah, have to yeah. do that if you do it. I mean, certainly hard. hitting, hitting tends to be suppressed kind of in the early oh, part of the season. terribly cold. Every um, year. This so, is so actually but you're, just, but Audie, yeah.
2: you're, you're reminding me that there was, I mean, I, I forgot about all the worry in the past years about, it's just becoming strikeouts and home runs. And it's kind That's of boring. Right. So yeah. So what where has that controversy gone? And did they make any moves or any moves we just infer that there's like games being played with balls and stuff?
0: Well, one obviously there if you one way to get fewer home runs is, is to deaden the ball a little bit, which means the balls will be fielded or it'll be doubles or or whatever they are. Um, I don't think we have enough data to know whether that's going to happen. It's certainly strikeouts are as at as high as they ever are. Um and we seem to see, I don't think that we're going to experience this. I mean, the, 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 the,
4: the two structural things they've tried there, you know, I mean, reducing the number of batted ball, the, the number of, of outs like you know, on balls in play, you mm-hmm. know, the, sh- the the restrictions on shifting that'll come in next year is that's year. one of the intents okay. of doing that. Okay. Obviously in terms of trying to reduce the number of strikeouts, getting rid of the sticky stuff. Yeah. Is the like something, yeah, and, I like- mean. It's was cold. <laughs> on,
2: it's so so f- don't tell me, update me, because that was a big thing last yeah. year. Yeah. So, well, so what's happened, Shane? Well,
4: well I mean. Gary yeah, Cole can't, put, can't, can't get people out. <laughs> that guy still gets people out way better than most. But, like, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, obviously, when, when they first started checking for it back, like, midseason last year, you saw, like, and I haven't actually looked at which play, I mean, players like because you know that you can actually have again a peripheral that has the strongest kind of correlation with the sticky stuff is the spin rate or whatever and you can kind of yeah. see this real discontinuity in some people's spin rate yeah. you know before or after they're checking but then you start to see this kind of creep up in a lot of players and you're like well Maybe they, you know, I mean, again, it's just kind of like back and forth. Maybe they were checking like the belt and the glove and maybe, you know, whatever The, the they actually it, it, it's telling that they actually, the umpires changed their policy of how they're checking for the sticky stuff this year. I've sort of seen in several games, the pitcher walks off the mound and ha- has their hand out and the umpire actually is touching now their fingers and actually checking their fingers oh, for wow. sticky stuff. And they're not allowed. I mean, if they try and like, wipe off their hand or do anything with their hand before that happens. It's like they're out of the game type of thing. So, wow. I mean, you kind of think to yourself, of course, that's how they would check for sticky stuff. I'm looking at your finger, but it only took like, you know, another half a season to kind of figure out the obvious process, but whatever. Uh, But yeah. So, I mean, basically they, I, I mean, I guess the TLDR and all that is they are continuing to try and get rid of sticky stuff in the game. It's, I would guess it's still kind of around, but no. you know, that, that is an attempt they're making probably. And it's going to be ultimately successful in terms of, you know, to the extent that any of these strikeouts are due to kind of that sticky stuff, it, it it's going to reduce. Well, I
0: have to say, I mean, I'm totally in favor of this kind of policing. I think this is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, this is definitely an intervention that I'm as a, I, even I think is just too much. I mean, they went crazy with this, but on the other hand, the shifting, which they're going to bring in next year. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm still waiting for the batters to learn how to, actually learn how to hit the other way i mean Donaldson. i think it was Donaldson, the yankees he was being shifted heavily on uh three on one side um and he made he dropped down the worst bunt but there was nobody at third base he just shot <laughs> it the first and uh, in fact he almost got a double out of it because it went up going foul and if he had actually you know it, it just seems like such a no-brainer and that yet the players
2: just don't want to do it are you saying his bunt went past third base Yes, That's how it, bad about it
0: was? <laughs> it landed. In, one of the rules about baseball is interesting. If it lands in bounds and then goes, when it passes third base, it's in bounds. It can bounce then very far out of bounds, yeah. and 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 it is a even so. The, if as long as it the first hit is in bounds and it goes over the bag. It yep. can, yep. it's second hit
4: could be very far. That's what happened. And, and it um, has to stay in bounds until it's past third base. Third base. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So aggressive, yeah, right. uh, aggressive bunt. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, Shane, I think you said you had a Verlander storyline. You were interested.
4: Well, I just, you know, I mean, kind of when we were talking earlier about uh, Kershaw, you know, I mean, and just, I, I got to thinking kind of like, I, I, I've become kind of very, uh, one of the things I'm kind of tracking this season in general is just sort of like kind of like kind of prospective Hall of Fame careers and kind of thinking to myself, you know, trying to enjoy as much as possible, you know, these players while they're still playing because, you know, the, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's it's nice to enjoy their Hall of Fameness after they've stopped for a few years, but like, and Kershaw obviously doing what he's doing, I think is amazing, but Verlander doing what he is doing at 39 years old. Yeah you know okay. i mean his so his i know i know, he, I know he's old
2: so i would remind me cuz he got the the astros so pulled he, him down and kind of rejuvenated his career to some extent and now that's where right. is
4: he well he's he's back on the astros okay um and and he last he he was off la- he basically was out last season he did Tommy John surgery at you okay. know in the late 30s wow. so r- kind of a risky procedure but I mean you know and he'd already had obviously he this is definitely a guy who's had a Hall of Fame career even before that and he comes back from Tommy John surgery and I mean again it's early but you know this th- the theme is kind of over overreacting to kind of early stuff I mean he is just unbelievable you know two two wins ERA of th- one point three two you know, whip one point zero nine eight. I mean, he's just he's, he's a point uh, six nine I got him. I Ten strikeouts. Okay, hold nine. on.
2: Now I now this is where I'm this is the I think this goes to Adi's stuff. My instinct here is what about the lineup he faced? So was it would he face good guys? Like how did he do versus expectation? Because the 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 bad story would be well he was facing last year's version of the Diamondbacks or whatever. No, oh the Mariners
0: and Angels he paid the get pitched against. These are not bad yeah. teams.
2: Those are not they're bad, not bad teams. teams. Okay, they're not
0: bad. No, teams. and and the thing about his career is, if you look back at his many many years in the Tigers, particularly during the you know the heyday of you know he's pitching in the late late aughts, and mm. this is a guy who was always in the mid threes, pushing four, um, sometimes way over four, and then it started to go down and and go down, and then he had a bad season. Oh, what you know, E-R- ERA? 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 And he did leave the Tigers, uh, to, and he went to the Astros, and since then he's just been golden. And this yeah. is his second half of his 30s. Uh, obviously, he had, he, had the, he was out 2021 completely and basically didn't pitch in 2020 either. So he essentially was off for two solid years. Um, but he was amazing in, in 2018 and 2019, took two years off, and he seems to be dominant. That's, uh, you know, that's, we're wondering what's going on. Is this biomechanics, is this, yeah. is this training, is this – I mean, listen, uh, uh, I don't know if it, whether Eric put it up, but of the currently active players most likely to make the Hall of Fame – uh, you know Verlander's obviously top top five for sure I might even put him as you know it, it's got to be Pujos, Cabrera um, I saw Trout as number one on that list I thought oh, yeah. that seemed to be I mean if Trout gets injured tomorrow and never plays a game will he make
2: the Hall of Fame yes
4: you really think yeah. so yeah yeah, he yeah so, aver- so just just to give you perspective his average war per season <laughs> is 9.6 Trout's yeah, nine point six. You've Poo-hole. Got to be kidding. Pujols, who we agree, first ballot Hall of Famer, five point four WAR average.
2: That's so absurd. So Trout is almost C- double. C- can we not get him? Can it's, we not? Do OPS,
4: like- Trout's OPS plus is one seventy six. The only player I could find that was even close to that is slightly higher. Barry Bonds was at one eighty two. So Mike Trout is basically That's hitting what? like Barry Bonds did. And there's only one reason Barry Bonds was not in the Hall of Fame the second he was eligible.
2: All right. Well, I like this list you're giving us of yeah. like, go enjoy the Hall of Fame careers while they're still going oh, on. Yeah. Just appreciate what you got. And you guys just rattled off six or seven guys that you expect yeah. to be in the hall. All yeah, right.
4: no. And there's several more that are more on the margins. Well, I'll update you on those in future shows.
2: Okay. Good enough. All right, guys. Well, that's what we got for. Q3. We have a long interview with Bill Connolly, our longtime friend Bill Connolly. Get to get into a little, little in, in spring. Let's take a moment and talk about college football. He has a great article up right now on ESPN. Come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment the last couple of years. I'm joined by my colleague and Wharton Moneyball co-host, Eric Bradlow. And we're both joined by a longtime friend of the show, Bill Connolly. Bill is a sports writer currently with ESPN and uh, often football, mostly college football. But he, he wanders. He does, <laughs> favorite, he does soccer, notably. Uh, he's kind of normalized soccer somehow in the college football world, and he dabbles here and, here and there in other places. Bill, always good to see you. Thanks for making time. Absolutely. I, I'm pretty
1: much guaranteed to alienate a decent percentage of my Twitter followers no matter what I tweet about uh, because, yes, while I – College football and soccer, like I like to believe there's a massive overlap there, and I realize there really isn't. (laughs) I feel really bad when I write something about soccer and it picks up followers, and like you just have no idea what you're getting into right
2: now. Sunbelt West preview coming up. (laughs) Straight. Well, listen, man, uh, speaking of picking up followers, you have a front page article on ESPN right now. I'm always delighted when you, you get these super high profile. I, I, think, I think about you. You write these like, what's it like, Bill, to write this thing? And like, you know, a few hours later, it's a <laughs> lead article on ESPN's website with millions of people write, reading it. I guess you're accustomed to this by now. You've been doing ESPN stuff for a couple of years.
1: Right. I mean, uh... um, it's, it's always kind of funny. You have to work ahead a little bit because, you know, for certain pieces, you, they're going to make art for it. And that's always kind of neat. Um, and the artwork for this one, I mean, this was, it was my destiny to write a piece where they end up making art where it's, you know, football players and soccer players and administrators all like riding planes made of money above soccer fields and football <laughs> fields. I just laughed when I saw the picture. It was just beautiful. Um, it was your, but, your worlds colliding. You that's you right. a
2: way to make your worlds collide.
1: That's right, and um, you know, I wrote about when the when the European Super League died last year. I I got a chance to write a couple things about that, and then OU and Texas announced they're moving to the SEC, and everybody starts using the same verbiage, the Super League verbiage uh, for football. But I, I kind of went out of my way. Like, I, I started having the, the ideas for this piece in like August, like after right. all that happened. And I decided, you know, we, a lot of us were writing reaction pieces. Let's just marinate for a little bit and see what, how things play out uh, until then. So I just kind of kept the notes to the side and we pegged it for when uh, basically the anniversary of when the Super League died, two days after it, you know, started. Right. Um, and so that's why it came up now.
2: Well, you know, even in your writing about this piece, you talk about the Premier League separating from the rest of the whatever yeah. federation was, and, and in some ways, this feels it feels a little more appropriate analog yeah. here, and and you know, it would be a heck of an example for the those that would be in the Premier League of college football to have because the Premier League has separated itself so much, not just from your not just from English soccer, but from all the, the world.
1: yeah, no, the the money, and I'm I'm sure you know having the language you know, blend so beautifully over into America and like uh, the other major European leagues, I'm, maybe that that creates a little bit of an advantage for them. But there's no question, um, you know, when, when the people who run, what was it, Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United 35 years ago started getting really frustrated that they were having to you know, basically work with 90 other something clubs, uh, many of whom did not share anything close to the levels of ambition that they did. Um, you know, watching the NFL do what the NFL was beginning to do at that point. Um, you know, they, they did start to put the pieces together. And uh, what was that book called? The Club, I believe, that everybody read last year after the Super League, a really good um, book about the formation of the Premier League. Um, it, it, there are a lot of parallels there and, and you can certainly now draw a lot of parallels between that and the, uh, the, the burgeoning sec, which I guess would make like Ohio state, like real Madrid, in this case, the outside the <laughs> yeah. dominant, the dominant outsider. Right. But, um, but no, I mean, one league has certainly took a humongous step forward. And I'm very curious now as to how these other dominoes fall over the next decade or so.
2: Well, this is one of the reasons, I mean, look, I'll take any excuse to talk college football, much less with you. And so that I'm always up for that. Um, And there's so there, it it goes right to the heart of a number of really big issues. College football feels as dynamic in the last year as it has in some time, because it's not just realignment, it's NIL. Um, It's, um, you know, it feels like a time that Almost anything can happen, and no one's real sure what's going to happen. And (laughs) and so this gives us a chance to get into that. I want to start with this. First, one question is, what's your current theory on why there has been so much consolidation at the top? Why, Why is it that the top teams are more persistent than they used to be? They seem to, you know, garner a higher percentage of their playoff appearances and championships than they used to. Probably the money as well. Why has there been more consolidation at the top in college football? Well, I mean, first of all, it's college football,
1: and you know, you can. I still don't know if we have quite as much consolidation now as we did in, say, the '70s. Um, when I think I, I counted it up one time, you can basically take, well, Alabama, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Texas, uh, Penn State, Notre Dame uh, USC, just this list of, of powerhouses, eight to 10 powerhouses. They were at least seven of the top 10 every single year in the 1970s. So we do have this in in the history of the sport already that the blue bloods are going to dominate most of the time. But I think you combine that with Nick Saban completely changing how all of us consider dominance. Um, it's no longer Pete Carroll dominating everything for like four years. It's Alabama dominating for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And you add on to that, you know, kind of this, this idea of top players want to go where they think they'll play in the playoff. Um, I think that has absolutely played a role here. We saw that in the champions league too, when that first started, uh, you know, suddenly players were being a little more specific about the teams they were choosing because, Hey, this is pretty awesome. This champions league thing, I want to play in it. I want to make sure I go to a team that will play in it. So I do think we've seen a little bit of consolidation in recruiting from that as well. So it is a maybe a little different now than it has normally been with college football, um, but I don't know. You know, if Nick Saban retires, which I don't know if he's ever going to retire. I'm I'm not going to ever predict it. Um, maybe that alone kind of makes some of this
2: effect go away. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Of course, <laughs> there were, there are a lot of schools that are going to be happy when when Saban rolls yeah. away. Um, I just want to observe that in order to. Cover the seventies as well as you needed to cover the seventies. You had to go through about twice as many schools as you would need to explain yeah, the two thousand ten. That's true. So there, so there was a there was a click for sure. But now it's just this really small group, <laughs> and yep. you can just lock a couple of playoff spots in every year to a set of maybe four schools. Eric's trying to jump in here.
3: Yeah, Bill. Do you think that uh, nil? could actually have a positive redistributive effect of talent? I mean, an economist would say it almost has to because without players being able to monetize their names, likenesses, et cetera, then the the attraction of the bigger schools becomes unidimensional. Of course, I want to go to the big schools, but now that I can go to a smaller school but be the star there, but be compensated for Mm. it, it might actually lead to a balance. So maybe in the next 10 years, do you think we're going to be seeing, you know, I have to go out to 20 schools to talk about the ones that are likely to make the uh, BCS championship.
1: Yeah, I think I, it's hard to predict. I mean, I, I, I've already been wrong about so much when it comes to NIL. When When you just think about, you know, they, when we were talking about players making money off their name, image, and likeness, we were thinking of like signing autographs at the mall, um, you know, jersey, jerseys in the bookstore. Uh, because I remember my, one of my examples when people, th- you know, one of the naysayer arguments was, well, then, all the kids are going to choose the top schools, like like they didn't already. And my my kind of counter to that was like, you could go to Eastern Michigan, you could be you could be Michigan's nineteenth or twentieth best recruit, or you could go to Eastern Michigan and have your jersey sold in the score, in the stores. Maybe that works out better for right. you. And so with that example, I was I was pretty excited. And honestly, this first recruiting class that took place in the in the NIL era Texas A&M signed the number 1 class not Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State Missouri I didn't even know Missouri could sign top 15 classes and they did Jackson State signed maybe the best player in the country so If you were of the belief that this will be a great evening force, then you have decent evidence right out of But it's also
3: measurable, right? Like that's the other thing. So the good news about this is like, you know, in the classic before-after-event study, which is we've got the data for the last 10 years. We're going to track this for the next five or 10 years. You can measure the, if you'd like, the heterogeneity or dispersion in recruit talent. And it's an empirical question that's actually answerable.
1: (laughs) Right. And maybe it will continue to maybe the evidence will continue to pile up in that way that this is college football. So there's a very good chance that even despite this kind of weirdness at the start, that, soon, this, these collectives that are forming, because that's not something any of us were really predicting. It was, it was going to be just this nameless collective of they're going to get money, but we don't really know where, where it's from or how it's come about. That's not what we were predicting. And odds are pretty decent that in a few years, Alabama and Georgia and, you know, Texas and USC and whoever else will have the best collectives and therefore sign all the best classes again. But if, if that does happen, it's not a, it's, it's, it doesn't really become an effective NIL. It just means that NIL didn't change anything because they were already signing the best classes. So either it you know, changes quite a bit like what we might be seeing right here out of the gate or you know, nothing changes and you know, it doesn't, power still doesn't consolidate because it
2: already consolidated. I think this is a place where a little theory is is helpful i mean it's it's such a confusing world and so i've been kind of grappling for what the right framework is and and we could be wrong about that but i'm really sympathetic to eric's economic framework and and Mm -hmm. just this idea that it's it's adding a dimension and that unless that dimension is perfectly correlated with the dimensions that drove things before it's going to spread things out a little bit and i i've I've got i put my chips on that in a pretty big way and with the that we don't know what the, the, right. how, the how the rules are going to change with this thing. So, you know, the, their stories, are, you know, Mandel and The Athletic have been all over the NIL stuff over the last couple of months. By the way, after being spectacularly wrong when it first came out about what right. the consequences would be, which is good on him for having flipped so quickly, but they talk about Tennessee and the collective at Tennessee. Right. Yep. Tennessee has been really struggling for a while now on the football <laughs> field. They yep. can use anything that's going to boost their recruiting is mm-hmm. going to, you know, flatten in some sense the competitive landscape in the sec east so uh, an example
1: yeah I, I wrote a piece one of my favorite pieces that i've written in a while another little thought experiment type piece back in i think early january talking about there's nil alone right never mind super leagues and all this stuff in the future but nil is the biggest change agent we've seen in the sport since ncaa versus the board of regents allowed uh teams to or teams and conferences and everything else to create their own TV deals in the eighties. After that came about after board of the regents meant that, you know, you could, the, the college football association, I think is what they called it. The first kind of collection of teams. They were able to make TV deals with ESPN, the number of TV televised games, period exploded. Uh, Brands emerged Miami and Florida state came out of nothing to become the biggest, the two biggest uh, programs in, in the sport. Um, whereas, you know, th- that was the case in the late eighties. If you were to said that in the mid seventies, you would have gotten just laughed off the, off the, um, off the planet, pretty much su- suggesting that Florida state of Miami would be the biggest names in right. sports. So this is, this is an opportunity for change. That doesn't mean it will come about, but this is this, this huge unknown that a lot of schools are trying to exploit. And if some do it much better than others, it could create a shift. And again, If if Nick Saban retires, that would also create a shift. And I I certainly encourage that, even though it's never going to (laughs) happen.
2: Just going to keep on going, is he? That's right. Um, Okay, TV. You just mentioned TV. This is um, bone to pick is too strong a phrase. But (laughs) I wanted you to talk more about the role of TV in the future of this, Mm -hmm. you know, the college football super conference, Super League, to the extent that it comes to be. What role do you think TV will play, and especially as you hear people talk about the upcoming Big Ten, you know, TV contract, <sighs> and it, to what extent is Fox going to say, okay, we have to get in big to counterbalance ESPN? ESPN's all in on the SEC. We need to have the Big Ten. Is it's it's not hard to tell a story, and it's just storytelling, but it's not hard to tell a story where it's like it kind of becomes an ESPN Fox thing. Right. You know, forget the. AFL and NFL. Let's make it Fox versus ESPN. (laughs) Whether or not something quite that stylized happens, it has to be the case that these TV contracts and the interest of the TV conglomerates is going to play a role in this. I mean, so I'm just curious how you think about that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And the question is, does that make it, what we're seeing now is it's almost like the SEC and Big Ten have Begun to separate themselves both pretty far from the pack, but basically because of the whole ESPN versus Fox thing, Big Ten seems to be going very much all in on the on the uh, on the Fox side of things. And and that makes perfect sense. We'll we'll see what happens when the playoff. Apparently, we're gonna you know we're not gonna expand the playoff until negotiations come about here, or until they can redo those TV contracts after 2025, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think one of the ideas there was that that way they can distribute ESPN, get some games, Fox, get some games, and so on and so forth. I guess the variable there would be that's kind of locked into place here. The SEC is going to make a stupid amount of money. The Big Ten is going to make a stupid amount of money. What happens with everybody else? How do they? You know, do they take weird chances with like Amazon or, or you know, who signs up with whom and what alliances form to get TV deals that can, I mean, they won't be competitive with the SEC and Big Ten, but more competitive, less of a disadvantage, at least, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how does that play out? I don't, I'm really... I mean, it's fascinating. Um, you know, I liked the, in, in Andy Staples, he had a mailbag a couple of weeks ago that I actually referenced in today's piece. Mm -hmm. Um, just somebody asked him about like, you know, are we, are are we going to end up with a big three, the SEC big 10, and basically a conglomeration of everybody else who wants to play the game, um, Mm -hmm. and, and is willing to invest and play at a very high level. And where you end up with like USC Clemson and Oklahoma state in a conference or whatever. Um, it's a fun. I mean, even if that doesn't become a league to itself, you do wonder if other, if there might, they might figure out some sort of scheduling alliances or whatever to, to try to create something attractive because yeah, I mean, those numbers that we're seeing with the SEC and big 10 are absurd. It, and the it, best thing you can say about it is that they can still only put 11 guys on the field and that still gives everybody else a chance to and there.
2: And the number, the numbers are absurd because the eyeballs are absurd. If yep. you look at the, if I, I, I Eric, seriously, we need to go get these data. It'd be a fun project to do with students to look at um, a few years worth of television ratings. But the numbers that the Michigan's, Ohio State's, Alabama's, Georgia's get versus everybody else, it's they're not in playing the same game. I mean, it's just right. categorically different. And therefore, they garner more of the TV revenue that the I was glad you mentioned Staples Piece because it was fun to read. I like the name he gave to that third conference. Was it the rest, the ROI, the Roy League? It's the rest of y'all. I think that yeah, that <laughs> sounds the, right. I think that's the rest of y'all title. But you know, I it seems, you know, we're just playing just speculating. The way Texas and Oklahoma moved, it was just it was one, these coalitions of relatively disparate parties are not very stable. And so right. when you got two teams carrying so much of the baggage eventually it's just gonna to be too much. And and pair that with what you talked about, your FOMO theme that said this connects <laughs> what happened in European soccer and yeah. what's going on in college football. Everyone's scared of missing out. It's gonna lead whenever USC, if the Pac-12 can't get its act together and they continue to, you yeah. know, be weak in TV contracts, weak in eyeballs, weak in placing games, eventually USC. Is either going to have to, they don't have to choose between being left behind right. or or breaking with all of their – that's exactly what Texas and Oklahoma faced. And i, I got to believe that the USC's of the world, the Oregon's of the world, they're going to at some point cut, cut lines with the yeah. rest of their partners unless the Pac-12 can figure it out. But yeah. if they can't, that's where – the and what are they going to do? Are they going to go <clears throat> blend with Clemson or might they blend with the Big Ten? I mean, they're longtime, you know, Roseville partners. It could be that it's just Big Two gets to be a bigger two.
1: Yeah. The main reason, or one of the main reasons why the, um, why the Super League idea in soccer fell apart so quickly was, you know, it was unleashed to fans and fans went, no, and absolutely like Arsenal, like we don't want to play Inter Milan instead of Everton. We want to, we, we are here. We want to be in this league. And they hated the idea yeah. uh, and they, they, they sided with their own league and, and all the English clubs were like, Oh crap. And, you know, d- dialed it back in a hurry. There is none of that in college football. Absolutely none. Especially, uh, not,
2: especially on the West coast. You think those rabid uh, UCLA fans are going to protest that, whenever. <laughs> right.
1: Like the, the, the thing that shocked me the most, I mean, o, OU and Texas leaving in, in itself was shocking, but even beyond that, I did like a, a, a Columbus radio show right around the time of the announcement. And I, and I, I, it was one of my favorite shows to do, um, but they were, they were freaked out. They were like, do we need to like, What do we need to do? Do we need to, like, how? uh, We're not getting left out here. Do we need to figure out how to, like, uh, I think Ohio State's going to join the SEC one day? You know, they were in Columbus, there or something? Yeah, it was in the moment. And and that was, I mean, again, that was immediate reactions yeah. but there yeah. was no loyalty there was no like we can't leave <laughs> illinois it was no we we are absolutely getting on this train however it needs to happen we're going to do it and right. so there's there's not going to be any sort of pushback like we, nobody wants to get left behind and there's no sense of loyalty to your you know country in this case i guess
2: right
3: right do you think that uh, bill do you think that analytics will let's say, help the small market player or her. Like, for example, maybe, you know, let's imagine the old days you had like Jerry Rice went to, I don't even remember the name of the school he went. I know it was Mississippi Valley State. Yeah, there we go. Mississippi Valley State. But today with wearable technology, Mm -hmm. with everything they measure you out at the combine, with like, in some sense, everyone can get measured on a common set of measurables. And maybe these diamonds in the rough, one argument would be, it doesn't matter where they go. Another argument would be they can't just hide out in a small conference and be a giant in a land of midgets because people are going to figure out that yeah, they're better than everybody in that conference, but they're not better than everybody. So how do you think analytics will play a role in terms of, you know, in some sense uh, people going to smaller schools and then being able to make it? Yeah.
1: I think what we've seen in recent years, um, I mean, there are a lot of small school draft prospects this year, guys who stayed in small schools the entire time. I love Pierre strong, the South, uh, South Dakota state running back. He's awesome. The Anderson, the kid at Montana state, like there are still a lot of those stories where, the old thing of, you know, if you play awesome, we'll find you, you know, if you're good, we'll find you. You don't need to go anywhere. Like there's video everywhere. Now you can watch every, if you're a fan of an FCS team, uh, all you probably need is like a ESPN plus subscription or something to watch all your team.
3: Isn't there also the potential first quarterback being taken in the draft. Willis didn't go to Liberty Liberty. Yeah. He he
1: transferred from Auburn like three years ago and nobody thought anything of it because they didn't know what, what he was or was going to be. And he went to Liberty and now he's going to be like a top six pick or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, there's absolutely that case to make, but what we're seeing a lot with the portal as well is you star at an FCS school uh, and put your name in the portal at the end of the year. You're going to get some big like. There was a big fight over that Jared Vance kid who who went from Albany to Florida State. Lots of those guys, if because you know a lot of times when you sign for FCS, maybe it was a case that you didn't take academics seriously at first in high school and you couldn't catch up. But a lot of cases, it's just that you're a sixth three 215 pound defensive end uh, who's never been in a w- real weight room before and then you go to school and a year later you're six four two sixty five and just as fast and suddenly you're all a big star there's going to be a market for you if you're looking to test yourself even in college uh, there will be a lot of opportunities for you to move up and do that. So still a risk. You, you, I mean, if you don't have the right connections, you won't really know what your market is until you go into the portal. But if you want to take that route, you don't have to wait till the pros to, to test yourself and figure out what you are and prove yourself and improve your stock and all that. So yeah, there's kind of evidence for both of those right now. I guess maybe that's a good thing just from the, you know, every athlete has a choice here, but um, it really is kind of an interesting place to be with that.
2: Mm -hmm. that's that's that is the other big change in the last year along with nil and again we don't know how it's going to play out but we're certainly seeing i mean the player movement is remarkable and as you just gave examples it goes in both directions and so it's it's you got to be happy for the players i mean they get Mm -hmm. more choice here the the match coming out of high school is not always going to work out and so you get to rematch um Mostly, I would think it benefits the better schools to the extent that players want to play on championship teams. Right. Gonna, it just adds fluidity and they're going to match. If we think it consolidation has increased over time because high school recruiting has become more efficient with huddle and all this other technology. Right. Well, now they get to rematch every year. And so it's just greater efficiency. And so you'd expect even more matching. But. You know they care about things other than just championships. Otherwise, everybody would all just line up to go to Alabama. We have people moving to, you know, moving from Auburn to to Liberty to play for playing time. So playing time goes in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, no question.
1: And, you know, I think the portal does offer an opportunity for everything to go in both directions where, yeah, a smaller school star can now go up to a bigger school. A guy at Alabama who isn't, you know, who's stuck on the second string and wants to be a star, thinks he's overlooked or whatever. Now he can go to another school and uh, try to thrive there. And, you know, if you're a, a group of five school or an FCS school and you just lost your best player to a bigger school, you can turn right around and get the D two stars as well. Like it's, the it's, it's just flowing up and down. It's an, and it's a big circle. All that said, you know, one of the, the points I made in the, in today's piece was that uh, one of the things I've had to come to grips with is I've, I've, I'm very, very pro player in these regards. And I'm also very pro underdog. I'm a sports socialist. I love the, I love parody and I love the 2007 college football season and all that. But those things don't really go together very well. And the more player friendly we get, the more we find out that certain schools are willing to be, are willing and able to be a lot more player friendly than others. Mm -hmm. And chances Mm -hmm. are, it ends up kind of consolidating power uh, when we do this. That's that's been a little hard to me. I love the underdog stories. That, even though, as a as one of my favorite coach friends to talk to always says, like it's it's a myth. Underdog stories are just a myth. It never boise state never won the national title, you know. Um, oh
2: we still enjoyed the 15 run
1: we into still, the sweet, It was sweet, still awesome.
2: Elite eight. Come on, man. That's you, right. we'll, take that's it, right. we'll take it, we'll take it for as long as we can. That's do.
1: right. Cincinnati made the final four this year and it was great. Greatest, and, they played, and, they, and they played better than Michigan.
3: Greatest football game ever played is still that Boise State-Oklahoma yeah. <laughs> game. So that's still the greatest football game ever played. That was, to me, a national championship game.
1: Yeah. No, it was like I, I, I love the underdog stories, and they will still exist like that. But, you know, it's going to be harder to keep. Most likely, it's going to be harder and harder to either attract the talent you need or keep the talent you need once you attract it. And that's going to yeah. be hard.
2: Does it, does it make them not an underdog if they build a collective? Like if the Eastern Michigan had a real sweet collective for some reason, are you like, is that a good thing for your underdog thing? Or is that, Oh, now they're not an underdog.
1: Well, I mean, what I I would assume there are degrees of effectiveness and volume within each collective, uh, so Eastern Michigan created one that doesn't necessarily mean they're competing with Texas A&M's just yet.
2: Right, right, right. Well, I mean, or, Oregon, Oregon maybe is a better story. Oregon yeah. wasn't really yep. on the national scene much. And then Nike blows up and Nike becomes a thing. And now they're on the national scene. And that was cute for a couple of years.
3: <laughs> well, so look, it's, if, if it's effective,
2: some, but it's not cute anymore.
3: Right. I mean, there were structural things that could be done, right? For example, if you think about prior to the BCS, we know who went to the Rose Bowl, right? It was the right. Pac-10 champ and whatever it was, the big 10, if it was 10, yeah. only the 10 at that time, over my teams, <laughs> big 10 champ, and you knew who went to the Orange Bowl and everything. The BCS, if it wanted to, could say there's going to be one team from this mega conference one team from this one one team from this one and all of a sudden talent would redistribute if it right. wasn't oh, wait you mean all four sec teams can't be in the uh, bcs well th- i mean th- i'm not saying they're going to do that i'm not even proposing that all mm-hmm. i'm saying is there is something structural that could be done if right. they don't like the mega conferences
2: eric yeah. this is a major issue this is a major issue with the playoff expansion yeah. and you you got your finger right on it and bill deadgum this is like the most disheartening thing i've heard from <laughs> all you college football sp- podcasters this summer is that the sec they think is now going to oppose the top yeah. four, the top four buys for, for conference titles. So have that I, right.
1: I don't really believe that. I think, I think Greg sink. So basically, yeah, the story here is that uh, last summer, that one of the major stories before OU in Texas delivered the earthquake they delivered was that um, a, a committee with, SEC commissioner, Greg Sankey and Notre Dame's uh, Jack Swarbrick, I believe. And then the big 12 commissioner as well. um, They crafted an expansion plan that was 12 teams. And one of the, uh, whether the the top four teams are conference champions, and then, you know, you fill it out from their top six conference champions, absolutely get a spot. So it basically starts to play out like what you were just saying, where, Theoretically, if if the talents kind of starting to drift to where the playoffs, uh, uh, the the most likely playoff bids would go, then I mean now Pac twelve is guaranteed a spot or almost ninety nine percent guaranteed a spot as long as they're one of the top six conference champions. So that's that's good. That's that was certainly in the right direction. And then the OU Texas thing came about and all the other commissioners then started treating this plan. Like it was some sort of secret, like there was invisible ink involved where as soon as they all agreed to it, then it's a, actually Greg Sankey wrote in there that sec gets six spots or something. Like it was some conspiracy. They, didn't trust, they, didn't trust. they couldn't trust what they, what was a pretty straightforward plan. They could no longer trust it because of who it came from. And therefore they stalled and decided they couldn't work on it yet. And and I'm pretty sure they were stalling as well because they wanted to make sure that, Again, after 2025, the TV contracts get renewed or get renegotiated and, and um, you know, that way, you know, it wouldn't just be an ESPN thing, most likely it would go to this network and that network. And so they were probably stalling for that, too. But all these people, the way they reacted to it and they, they, they it was it, it should have been a no brainer to me. Um, but I'm, I'm not in the room and basically at the end of all that, when it was, when it was decided that, that we will officially not be expanding before the end of 2025, that's where Greg Sankey basically said, well, guess I'm going to have to rethink my thoughts on this a little bit. I think that was just kind of posturing
2: for the most part. Well, I hope, but- I hope you're right. I, I, cause I hate, I hate the, I hate these buys cause it just it confers such an advantage. Yeah. But I'm okay with it if it goes to the conference champs because that right. preserves the the, the, right. the value of the regular season. Because I think it's just so ridiculous that these championships don't matter when it comes to the playoffs. And yeah. so great, have it both ways. That means anybody can play their way into this dang thing. And have the advantage of that first buy,
3: and make, that, it te- make it eight. Make it a team so that the SEC. All right, so you put in the poor top four, six conference champs, and the SEC can have three teams out of the eight. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fine. That's the way you, you have to do it together. There's no way they're agreeing to it unless there's an expansion.
1: Well, technically, right. now they don't all have to agree to it because once the once uh, right. they they had to be unanimous. To do it before those contracts were up in twenty twenty five. Now it just has to be a majority, I think. After that, so now it doesn't have to be unanimous. Uh, but I think that was just everybody getting crabby and trying to posture and play to their play to All their right. audience and whatnot. I'm going to hold
2: you to that. If I'm disappointed in the way this thing finally takes shape a couple of it, years, it from would now, be the, the it would be the first time I've ever been wrong about. Yeah, something I know. Like this. I'd ever, that. ever, ever, ever. Um, Bill, one last question before you: Go. W- what happens in these super leagues with teams that are used to being? you know, the, the, a big fish in a small pond and all of a sudden they're a small fish in a big pond. So how is it? And I'm, it's an honest question. So this is people talk about this with Texas. No, you going over to the SEC yeah. It's like, okay, it's going to be a rude awakening over there. How is it that the, you know, Tennessee is one of these down, down cycles right now. How is it that Florida lives survives as like a second thought in the SEC East after having such a, you know, such a good run there for a while. How is it the LSU deals with the unbelievable volatility they experience year to year in the sec west how is it that AM still holds their head up and they can't win us you know they can't beat out All- they well they've won they've beat them once you, you understand the question how has it worked in the premier league i mean maybe these teams are happy to just be in the premier league they don't care if they ever well, make the champions four or whatever
1: right i mean that, that's a big part of it in the premier league like you, they, they, they say like the most lucrative game in soccer is, is the final, the promotion final. Um, like with the second division of England, you know, the first two team, first two finishers get promoted and then three through six play a playoff. Like, you win that playoff and you get into the premier league. It's, it's just the most glorious thing in the world because of cash. you right. Because of the amount of money you're going to be like two of the three are probably going to go right back down the next year, but they're going to do so with more money. They can upgrade their facilities. They can theoretically in theory, build advantages. It doesn't always work that way. Um, but a lot of it really does come back to like it. It feels good to be included, right? Like none of those teams, Watford from last year, who's going to get Fulham's going to get promoted again this year? Maybe, maybe my non-enforced is going to come back into the Premier League for the first time in like twenty years. But um, they're not going to make the Champions League. They're not going to finish in the top four. The Leicester City story of twenty sixteen was the was spectacular, but it was a an obvious outlier. Um, it, but it feels good to be included. It feels good to make that money and, and have those maybe t- take uh, down one of those powerful teams when they come to your place. And I think that's a big part of it. I know OU fans. I, I, I grew up in Oklahoma. I know a lot of OU fans. One of the biggest things just from year to year, one of the things they were most frustrated about is just like their home schedules were never all that amazing. Um, you know, They always play Texas away from home. And all, they're always good teams in the Big 12. They kind of rotate, and, but, like, I, I think a lot of them just started dreaming about, like, the thought of Auburn coming to Norman versus Baylor. Baylor's better than Auburn a decent portion of the time, but it just still feels like, you know, that's well, Bill, big time.
2: Bill, you don't need to go to your Oklahoma roots. You've experienced this firsthand with Missouri. Consider yeah. the difference between the Big 12 schedule you used to go out and tailgate for versus the SEC <laughs> schedule you tailgate for now. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, remarkable
1: tailgating really has been disappointing because LSU's only been to Columbia once and it was the year when, when, when only 10,000 fans were allowed in. So that's been, you know, we haven't really gotten to, we haven't gotten that experience yet, uh-huh. but no, I mean, it really is. Um, there's a difference in feeling, I think for people and whether that feeling lasts or not, I mean, most of Missouri's problems right now are internal. It has, doesn't have to do with the fact that they left for the sec. Uh, they got a lot of issues stemming from a few years ago, but um, you know, it, it the, the, you could say, uh, who was it? um Oh, it was the outgoing big 12 commissioner who said the other day, like, and M probably feels like they benefited from the move. Who else really feels like they feels awesome about having left the big 12 and, you know, Colorado probably doesn't regret leaving, but they also, I mean, they haven't thrived. Missouri hasn't thrived by any means. Um So, you know, Short-term versus long-term. Maybe this is a short-term gains kind of feeling, but it's still. Yeah, that's interesting.
2: That's an interesting comment from him. But the but the, but the stat on what AM's recruiting has done right. in the 10 years before they left and the 10 years since they left is absolutely. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's dominant, Eric. It goes from they, they never had a top 10 class or never had a class above top 15 or so in the 10 years prior to moving. And they haven't had one that wasn't in the top right. 15 since they moved.
1: And now they're in the SEC where they can sign the eighth best class, and it's the fifth best class in the SEC. <laughs> no, no, so, well,
2: back to, really, back to the conversation, back al- to the conversation we were just having. So, right, I, you're saying al-
1: it- yeah, there have only been a couple more. There, there have only been a couple of like awesome seasons for A and M, but they just they feel like they're swinging and they're throwing punches
2: with the big boys. Well, they feel like that because they are, and yeah. so you're you're you're. It's helpful to me to hear you talk that through because that is the situation that anybody's going to face as they, as they consider going into these super leagues. Um, they they're, they're not going to be the, the big fish anymore. And there's yep. a downside to that, but it could be that the takings are just so much. You just can't miss out. You can't miss out.
1: Right. Fear of missing out. You can't, it might not work out great, but you're not going to pass. You're not going to just say, I'd rather stay where I am." Well, you well, take the
2: chance. And that's a function of it. Just it's a little more winner take all than it used to be. The, yep. the convexity of payment pay, um, payments have gotten so extreme that you need to be in that top division in order to experience the, the payoff, just just to bring it back to you, Bill, just like we've experienced with with soccer and especially English soccer. All yep. right. Listen, Bill, thanks for the time, man. Good to talk to you always. Good luck. Keep those pieces cranking out. <laughs> Looking forward to that uh, that that Sunbelt West preview. Campaign. That's right. Okay.
1: Go, go yes. Louisiana Raging Cajuns. <laughs>
2: That's Bill Conley. Bill, give us your Twitter handle. I'll always get it wrong. ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill C. I,
1: I never really realized how much of a problem the underscore would be. Just insane thing. But it but it is an issue. Either way, ESPN underscore
2: Bill C. You can find him. All right, Bill Conley. Thank you. And that has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week for the whole crew, especially Eric Bradlaugh, who's been right here with me this last half hour, for Audie Weiner, for Shane Jensen, for the boss man, Matty Dats. The associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.